Would you please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. A text that is very familiar to us. Jesus has died upon the cross. He has risen from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. And he gives marching orders to his apostles, to his church. And he says in verse 18 of Matthew 28, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father... As we seek to understand your ways and your heart for the world, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and comprehension from what your word says. Lord, we are so grateful that you've raised up the Beardmores to be sent out from this church to go to Australia to name the glories of Christ in that place. Lord, would you be pleased to raise up more? And Lord, for us who stay Help us to know how to hold the ropes for those who go and to serve them and to take our place in the great commission that you've given us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My wife, Angela, and I are big fans of old classic films. We love Jimmy Stewart and we love people like Gregory Peck and, and Gary Cooper. And one of our films that we love is a 1948 film called The African Queen. The African Queen is, stars Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. If you've seen the film, you know that it's set in 1914 in German-occupied East Africa. And Catherine Hepburn plays the role of Rose, who is a missionary who, along with her brother, is sent to Africa from Great Britain to be a Methodist missionary there. Her brother is named Samuel. <clears throat> and the opening of the film it shows a worship service being conducted, conducted in a small African village. And frankly, it's a study in exactly how not to do cross-cultural ministry uh, that's humorous and painful to watch all at the same time. But for our purposes here, I want to focus upon the character of the man named Samuel, who is the Methodist missionary. Very early in the film, news is brought from Great Britain, a paper about what's going on among the Methodists back in Great Britain. And sitting at tea, uh, Samuel is looking through the paper. And it's obvious that he's very jealous of a friend that he'd gone to seminary with named Herbie Morton. Herbie Morton, who's just recently been posted to be a bishop, a pastor of a Methodist church back in his homeland of England while he's stuck on the mission field in Africa. And his jealousy is barely concealed. And we find out not much later why it is that Samuel is in Africa and not back home in Great Britain. German troops invade the small village and burn everything to the ground. They take captive all the Africans that are there. And Samuel tries to restrain the German soldiers. He's hit in the face with the butt of a German gun. And because everything he's worked for is turned to ashes, literally, and he has no more mission to minister to, his health is shattered. And within the first 15 minutes of the movie, he dies. I know what you're thinking. Okay, Pastor, spoiler alert. But in my defense, you've had since 1948 to see the film. So, you know. But he dies. 
And as he's dying, he's delirious, and he's laying upon his deathbed. And as he's doing that, his mind goes back to his days in seminary. And as he thinks about seminary, we soon discover why it is he's not in Great Britain and he's in Africa. Because in his delirium, he says this, quote, I try so hard to study Hebrew and Greek, I've got no felicity. In other words, I don't have the smarts for it. If I don't pass the examinations, I shall volunteer as a missionary. End of quote. Now, there's two things I draw from that. Number one, if I can't get a job anywhere else, I'll be a missionary. But secondly, there's an implication in those words, isn't there? That in order to be a missionary, the qualifications are not nearly as strenuous as those to be a pastor in your own hometown. Now, obviously, this is a fictional film. But in some ways, I think that the writers of the script there tapped into something that is sadly a great truth in our own day. And with so much of what goes on in missions, so much of missions is all theological. The idea is we need to get as many people to know Jesus as we can. And so let's go out and get people to make decisions for Jesus and baptize them, leave them copies of the Bible and move on, hoping they'll figure out what they're supposed to do after this. Now, that may seem kind of uh, a gloss over, but the reality is there really is a lot of that that goes on in the modern world that all emissions is about is getting people decisioned up for Jesus. And theology, that just slows us down. That's divisive, and that's stuff that doesn't matter. Let's just worry about winning the world for Jesus, and we can figure all that stuff out later. Well, the problems with this are enormous, first of all, because you cannot do evangelism without having an awful lot of theology. Because when you share the gospel with the lost, you're telling them something about who God is. And then you're telling them about what sin is. And you're telling them about who you are and who Jesus is and what he came to do. You're even getting into eschatology because you say flee to Christ that you might flee from the wrath that is to come. There are prophecies yet unfulfilled. Jesus is going to come again. He's going to be the judge of the whole earth. You're going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And you must repent and you must believe. You've got to have justification by grace through faith in Christ alone uh, if you're going to do evangelism. So first of all, evangelism itself is not all theological. But furthermore, the verses we've just read, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. And in that Great Commission, yes, evangelism is where we start. Go and make disciples. But do you realize that in this text, there are actually three precepts. It says, make disciples, baptize disciples, and teach disciples. He doesn't say, go out and make decisions. He says, go out and make disciples, people who are lifelong servants and followers of Jesus Christ. Baptize them and mark them out as followers of the triune God. And then teach them to observe most of what I've commanded you, some of what I've commanded you. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Teach them the whole counsel of God's word. The Great Commission is not only concerned about the evangelization of the lost but also about the sanctification of the saved. And this is so imperative. And it's not just a theoretical thing, brothers and sisters. If you talk about missions or are excited about missions, invariably you've heard things about China, haven't you? China has the fastest growing church in the world. Cuba has the fastest growing church per capita, but China has the fastest growing church in the world. And certainly, is God doing great things in China? I think he is. Pastor John Miller's been there. He's seen firsthand. 
But there's things you don't hear. According to missiologist M. David Seals, 85% of the churches in China are pastored by women. And furthermore, according to missionaries there, an estimated 10,000 local churches every year in China are lost to the pseudo-Christian cults. You say, why? Because they do not have biblically qualified leadership to teach them to no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind and doctrine, but to give them settled truth, truth that will establish their souls and protect their souls, because if I'm subject to every wind of doctrine, my soul's in danger. And without qualified biblical leadership to teach them and train them to be churches, not still from Pastor John's Thunder later, but that that are self-governing and self-supporting and self-reproducing, By the way, what's the goal of our churches here? What's the goal of First Baptist Church of Clinton? Self-governing, self-supporting, self-reproducing. Church in Berean Baptist Church in Hiram, same thing. The same thing we're doing over the mission field, doing here as well. It's just an extension of what we're already doing here. But that should be our goal. Well, I hope you're getting some sense of why theology is important to missions. We believe in biblically robust missions Theologically robust, if I may say it, we believe in confessional missions, don't we? If we believe our confession to be truth, then these are the truths we want to send before the nations. Well, obviously, in the time I have allotted to me, there's no way I'm going to be exhaustive. As a matter of fact, I will not try, I'll try not to be exhausting either. But I want to take, as it were, it's like taking a rock and skimming it across the surface of a lake and just touching upon how does theology affect missions and what does it mean to us. And I hope the Lord will use it. My prayer has been that you'll come away just going, what a great God we serve. What a great God we serve. So I'm going to give it to you under five headings, just five words. You have it there in your uh, handout. I want to speak to you of the theology of mission under first, God. Second, covenants. Third, culture. Fourth, worship. And fifth, glory. So first of all, God. The theology proper. What does the doctrine of the existence and attributes of God have to do with missions? Well, in a small word, everything. Everything. But to be specific, God himself is the motive of missions. God himself is the content of missions. And third, God himself is the, is the goal of missions. So first of all, God himself is the motivation of missions. Tom Wells has written a classic book called A Vision for Missions. It's out there on the, on the book table. Encourage you to get it and read it. And he opens it by saying this. He had met a missionary, and this missionary said to him, quote, A need will not keep you on the mission field. People will rebuke and repel you. And then he goes on to speak of another missionary, a woman who had been for many decades in Thailand, very hard place to minister. And he asked her the question, What's the secret of your staying power? What has kept you, you know, your hand to the plow? And without hesitation, she replied, quote, God's command. If it wasn't for God's command, I wouldn't be there. And he goes on to say this about her. The stars were gone from this woman's eyes. She had not lost lost her ideals, only her idealism. Neither response to human need nor the spirit of adventure could have kept her at her post. Yet she had an answer. She fell back on God's direction. She was under orders, so she stayed. End of quote. Oftentimes in a missions, uh, missions conference like this, 
Sometimes an overzealous missionary or overzealous pastor will say things like this. The Great Commission is the greatest commandment in all the Bible. Do you know it's a very important commandment, but Jesus actually identified a very different commandment as the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second grace is, just, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those twin motivations are the force and driving force behind obedience to the Great Commission and indeed to all of God's commands. But there is, even in that, there is a priority of the first commandment being first. Even as much as we may love souls, we must love God even more. And that is imperative. Brothers and sisters, I've been a pastor for almost 13 years at the same church. Bivocational the entire time. Been through a lot of controversies, a lot of struggles. You pastors, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The hardships, the things that just scars deep in your soul. And if I had a nickel for every time I wanted to quit, not only could I quit, I could quit in style. My wife and I could go do a tour of the Cayman Islands on some, you know, yacht or something. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I felt like quitting. But what keeps me from quitting? What keeps you from quitting? If I asked the question, is it worth it? I would probably say no. If I go further and say, are God's people worth it? I know the answer to that is yes. But if I'm being honest in my flesh, you pastors, don't you think sometimes you go, mm, well, a few of them maybe. We know they have never dying souls. We know Jesus shed their, his blood for them. But in our flesh, sometimes we think, well, maybe not even that. But we're asking the wrong question. The question that we have to always come back to is, is Jesus worth it? Is God worth it? And when I ask that question, I only have to go to the answer. I put my hand right back to the plow. Because whatever we suffered... For Jesus' sake, it's not so much as a drop in the bucket for what he's suffered for us to redeem our souls. Isn't this what the Hebrew writer has in mind when he says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. We ask the question, is God worth it? And the answer, of course, we know is absolutely he is worth it. Put your hand back to the plow, keep working. Because our God is worth it. So God himself, I would contend, is the motivation of missions. But in the second place, God is the content of missions. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, the Apostle John says something that I think is quite astonishing. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him. We've heard a message from Jesus. Here, here's, his earthly mes- here's his earthly ministry. And he doesn't say, this is a message we've heard. This is a part of the message we've heard. This is one of many, no, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. And he says something that we're not expecting. He says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I'm distilling for you the message of Christ and this message we preach. You're going, what? What's what's that all about? Think about it. It's a parallel to John chapter 1. There the Bible says no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God the Father at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father... He has declared him. He has expounded him. What John is saying is, here's the central message of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what my father's like. This is what my God is like. And why that's so central is this. When we know who God is, we know who we are. In the light of his holiness, we are suddenly exposed for what we are. 
And in fact, that's where John goes in 1 John chapter 1. After saying God is light and in him is no darkness at all, he says, if we say we are in him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the bl- we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, we can take this truth, apply it to man, and we can tell, are you a true convert or are you a false convert? All in light of who God is. Because if we show, when God shows us who he is, just like Isaiah, he reveals himself to Isaiah. And what's Isaiah? What's the first thing off his lips? Woe is me. For I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognizes his need of redemption. He realizes his need of a Savior when he's shown the holiness of God. Think of Paul when he's at Mars Hill. He preached very differently at Mars Hill than he preached anywhere else, didn't he? When he was in the synagogues where people who were Jews who had grown up hearing the scriptures and singing the psalms together, he preached to a people who he knew were biblically literate. And he could talk about Moses and the psalms. He goes to Mars Hill. These are a bunch of ignorant pagans. They've never had uh, the Bible uh, read to them or preached to them. They're, they're completely ignorant. And the entire city's full of idols. And, ma- and just to make sure they hadn't missed anybody, they have another altar that's to the unknown God. And so Paul, vexed in his spirit cries out in the midst of the people, starts doing an open-air preaching, and he says, you are people given over to many gods. But I found an inscription that says there's an altar to an unknown god, and the one you don't know, I'm going to declare to you. And what's he start doing? He gives them Theology 101, doesn't he? He says, this is what God is like. You've got all these gods you have created by your imagination, but the one true and living God, you didn't create him. He created you. And what's more, he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need you. But you are completely dependent upon him for your breath and your life. And he's sovereign. He's ordained the day of your birth, the day of your death, how many beats your heart's going to beat, the boundaries of your habitations. You are absolutely dependent upon him for everything. And this God has a son. And he's appointed a day of judgment. And he's appointed it by the hand of this man he's appointed, Jesus Christ, his son, who he has raised from the dead. What's he giving him? This is what God is like. And this is his son. Well, that's what we've got to do as well. We go forth to tell people about God and what he's like. Now, brothers and sisters, listen how crucial this is. Idolatry does not only consist of us inventing other gods by our imagination and bowing down to them. Idolatry consists when we think of and worship God as something other than he is. He rebuked the people of God in the Psalms and said, you thought I was altogether like you. We have got to express the true God as he is to the world. And in saying this, I want to make a specific application. And I'm not at all trying to be controversial, brothers. But our our association of churches has gone through a very hard time over the doctrine of God and over his impassibility. And there have been statements made that this has no pastoral value whatsoever. It doesn't mean anything to the pastorate. Statements that if you hold to the view that God is impassable, it will kill evangelism and world missions. Well, I want to try to say something about what this doctrine means to missions and to evangelism, if I may. And I'm not trying to be controversial, but I hope this will be a help and encouragement to us, brothers. What does this doctrine mean? I have passions. And you have passions. In 1990... I saw this young lady visiting the church that I was a member of. And when I saw her, I thought she was a goddess. She was beautiful. And in my heart, I said, that's my wife. And I determined I was going to meet her. Her name was Angela. 
And I did meet her. And I was smitten by her beauty. And a year later, after I graduated from college, I started dating her. And I began to discover this woman wasn't just beautiful outwardly. She was beautiful inwardly. God's grace was at work in her. She loved the Lord. And I began to fall in love with her and with her personality. And I liked her so much, I married her. Okay? And she's been my wife for 23 years, almost. This coming January will be 23 years. But my love for Angela is a passion. There was a time it didn't exist. Because my love for her was caused by something in her. Her beauty, outwardly and inwardly, was caused within by something I saw in the object of the one that I love. And in almost 23 years of marriage, I can say my passion for her has grown much deeper, much richer. But I can also tell you there are days when my passion for my wife isn't what it ought to be. That I fall woefully short in loving my wife as Christ loves the church. And we know all too sadly, all too reality, the reality is that our love for our spouse can completely cease to exist. And that's because love for me is a passion. And love in you is a passion. It's an affection, something that was affected by someone else. But the love of God is not a passion. The love of God is not an affection. It's not a quality he possesses. It's who he is. It's who he is. It is in God a perfection. Which means this. Nothing inside of me produced love inside of God. If God had to love me based on what I am, he would hate me. And he would hate you too. Because we are great sinners. But no, God loves, and we think about it in our hymnody all the time. I've been noticing this. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. It's sovereign because God chose us and we didn't choose him. It's eternal, which means it never had a beginning. And here's the comfort, it never has an end. And it's, and it's unchanging. I can't change God's love for me. And God can't change his love for me. Because his love is a perfection. He is, as our confession says, most loving. Because he can't be more loving. Right? Isn't that glorious? Because what it means is, all God has to do to love you is be himself. That's it. And he can't stop being himself. You ever meditate on all the glorious things God cannot do? We have an all-powerful, omnipotent God. And the Bible says there's some things our God can't do. Pastor Fred alluded to it last night in James chapter 1. He cannot tempt us to sin. He cannot be tempted to sin. He cannot repent. He cannot lie. He cannot cease to be himself because he's God. Well, that's imperative. I've, I became a Christian when I was eight years old, raised in a Christian home. In almost 40 years since that time, I have found my zeal for evangelism comes and goes. My love for sinners goes up and down. I don't know about you, but if I get excited and zealous about evangelism for 10 minutes, I go, ain't God lucky? He's got me in his kingdom. And then it's gone. What do we do? I, I can relate to the Henry Martin, who was basically what David Brainer was to the 18th century. Henry Martin was to the 19th century. And he wrote in his journal, he was a missionary to India. He said this. He said, if I had my own way, I would sit in my study, surrounded by my books, and let the world rot. You ever feel like that in your own heart? But then he said, but the love of Christ compels me. I can't keep doing what I feel like doing. When my love for sinners is at a low ebb, where can I find it reignited? 
I can go to the fountainhead of love, to my impassable God, whose love for sinners doesn't even so much as flicker. And I can reignite my love for sinners. And even when I don't feel particularly loving, but I have the opportunity to share the gospel, I can say, Lord, my love for sinners is a dung heap, but I can point them to you because you love them always. Pastorally, think of it, limitations. Jeremiah is weeping. He's grieved in his heart. He's overwhelmed. Your judgments have fallen on your people. They've rebelled against you. They sinned. We went and preached the word to them. We called them to repent. They didn't listen. Your judgments are falling. And he's grieving in his heart. What comfort does he find? Where does he go? It's amazing that right in the midst of the book of Lamentations, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. He can put his head on his pillow at night weeping. Grieving in his heart over God's people and say, what's the point of even doing anything anymore? And yet what happens in the morning? Your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Brothers and sisters, when I think on this subject, I don't want to argue. I don't want to debate. I want to follow my face and worship. That's what I want to do. We have such a glorious God. To proclaim to the nations a God who changes not. So, brothers and sisters, it's important. Third thing under this first heading of God and why God is important to missions. Not only is he the motive of missions, not only is he the content of missions, God is the goal of missions. It was John Piper who famously said, missions exists because worship doesn't. The goal of missions, in one sense, yes, it is the salvation of souls. We have that as a goal. But it's not the prime goal. The prime goal is God's glory. Then the scriptures tell us that when we share the gospel, when we name the name of Christ to others, even if they do not receive the word we're preaching, God has been glorified by us, even if he's been blasphemed by them. That is, God is honored when his name is exalted. And our job is to exalt God among the nations. We have friends who are going to Papua New Guinea to preach the gospel there. And Papua New Guinea is a very backwards place. It's full of superstition and witchcraft and just all kinds of stuff. And all these tribes living inside the rainforest who've never heard the gospel. But think about it. God willing, five years from now, ten years from now, people who've never even heard the name of Jesus, they're going to hear God, Jesus' name and they're going to be singing his praise. People who never even heard of him, now singing praises to the creator of the world singing Jesus' name, taking it upon their lips, because what the gospel does is it takes idolaters and it turns them into worshipers of the true and the living God. So the glory of God is what is behind it. So I've given you hopefully some, at least some sense of, of God and how important theology proper is. Let's move on to the next thing, which is very related, and that is covenants, by which I mean covenants and Calvinism and the free offer of the gospel. Really? Y'all believe that stuff and you do missions? Really? I don't see how you can do missions without it, to be honest with you. But I want to focus on this when I say covenants. Certainly, I do believe world missions is the fruit born of true covenant theology. Think of it. When God made his covenant with Abraham, that was the foundation of the nation of Israel. But did he just have Israel in view? What did he say to Abraham? He said, in your seed, your singular seed, Paul will later tell us in Galatians, In your seed, all families of all nations shall be blessed. So Alan Beardmore going to Australia is a part of God fulfilling his covenant with Abraham. 
because all of God's seed being blessed, or all the world's nations being blessed through the seed of Abraham, who is Christ. But there's a specific covenant I want to focus on as I speak of covenants. And it's not a covenant that God made with men. It's a covenant God made with God. Okay, what we call the covenant of redemption. The Bible gives us these windows into these places where it's like God invites us to come up and put our ear to the keyhole of heaven's door and listen as the persons of the Godhead are communing with one another. So let us create man in our image, etc. We're allowed to listen in on that, as it were. Well, what is the covenant of redemption? We have language in the Bible, like Psalm 110. The Father speaks to the Son and says, I've sworn with an oath and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's swearing oaths. That's covenant language. Psalm 2 is very similar. The nations rage and say, we don't want to be under the authority of God, and we don't want to be under the authority of his Messiah. And God's response to that is laughter. And then he says, despite what you're doing, I've installed my king. He's the only begotten son. You can't impeach him. He won't resign. And I'm installing him. But again, it's covenant language. And I'm giving him your nations as his inheritance. They're his. He's the Lord of nations. We prayed for Alan Beardmore and they got their, their first visa was rejected. And our church prayed, Lord of nations, you are able to handle these things. And look what God's doing. He's making it better than it was before. It's just like the Lord, isn't it, to do that. We know who's over the nations and we can go to straight to him and appeal and cry out, you who are sovereign, who have all authority over all nations, do a mighty work. And he can do it. But nonetheless, there's this covenant God makes. He enters into covenant, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Put it simply, God had a chosen people and God had a chosen lamb. He chose a people of all the fallen humanity according to the good pleasure of his will. He chose them in Christ and chose that of all the people who are born to Adam, I'm going to save these people. And he gave them to Jesus. Read John's gospel over and over again. There's that language. The people you've given me. All the Father's given me, I will raise it up at the last day because that's his will for me to do. In other words, Jesus was entrusted with the care of establishing and securing their salvation by becoming a man, fulfilling the law in their place by obeying God's law as a man, but then dying in their place and suffering under the penalties of the law in their place and securing for them, once for all, their eternal salvation. So you have the first announcement of Jesus in Matthew. It doesn't say you would call his name Jesus because he'll make his people savable or because he'll try to save his people. No, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Okay? So there's a chosen people, there's an elect people, and there's a chosen lamb. Jesus was, the, the covenant of redemption was you will secure their salvation, but then there was a, also a work with the Holy Spirit. You'll apply that salvation to their hearts. In the fullness of time, you will take and apply that redemption to their souls and save them. Well, we hear something, though, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, that's so rich and wonderful. It's like we're getting to listen in on the covenant of redemption. Something glorious is there because here's the question. When God chose his elect, where did he choose them from? Listen to this. This is verse 5 of Isaiah 49. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. This is the son speaking of the father. To bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, God's elect come from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And brothers and sisters, that is what keeps us going. There was a missionary who said at the beginning of my missionary career, I thought I could never be a missionary if I believed in the doctrine of election. After 20 years of dealing with the hardness of men's hearts, I've come to conclude I couldn't be a missionary if I didn't believe in the doctrine of election. A missionary to Papua New Guinea named Ray Javello came to our church. He, he preached a sermon, great sermon, to our church on the covenant of redemption. Never heard a missionary preach on the subject. It was great. It was fantastic. But he got to the end, and you know what he said? He said, we are on the mission field because God called us to go there. But you know what keeps us on the mission field? It's the covenant of redemption. Because we know for certain there are Papua New Guineans who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, and God will not fail to save them. And that's why we're not discouraged. After 10 years, they have five converts. It says, but we're not discouraged. We press on. It's sure, it's certain, God will save his elect. And that's what keeps us going. And we need to touch as well upon the free offer of the gospel. God uses means to accomplish his ends, doesn't he? What does Paul say to us in, in, um, in Romans chapter 10? He tells us that we must, men must call upon the Lord for mercy if they are to be saved. But then he asks this question, series of questions. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? You can't call on Jesus if you don't believe in Jesus. But how can they believe in him of whom they've not heard? I can't even believe in someone I never heard of. And how can they hear of someone who does, someone doesn't go and preach to them? And here's where First Baptist Church of Clinton comes in. How can they preach unless they're sent? It's instrumental that they be sent out, that they might preach to people who've never heard about Jesus because if they don't hear about Jesus, they cannot be saved. They will certainly die and go to hell if they don't hear about Jesus. As a matter of fact, our confession opens. Sometimes people have said, made claims that our confession is not a missional document or not a very thoroughly missional document. I beg to differ. I was having a uh, conversation with Dr. Jim Renahan. I got to take his Baptist and Pollock's course back in August. And I told him, I said, somebody needs to write a paper called The Missiology of Our Confession. I know how this works when you volunteer stuff like that in, in, in associations. Well, when are you going to write it? You know, that's the kind of thing. But listen to this. This is how our confession opens. Chapter 1. Listen. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving, knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature... And the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. Point being, nature itself is not sufficient to show men that they're their Savior. We have to preach to them. Dr. Jim Renahan said this, our confession opens with the necessity of world missions. So... We get some sense of how God uses this free offer of the gospel to bring men to himself. We've touched upon God, the theology proper, how, it's, how it affects missions. We've touched briefly upon covenants and the free offer of the gospel. Third thing is culture. Culture. And I think our confession of faith helps us a lot here. Something we have to remember, and it's hard to remember, is that Jesus Christ is not a North American white man. He's the Lord of heaven. And people overseas do not have to become Americans in order to become Christians. Just as 
in Paul's day and in Peter's day, Cornelius didn't have to become a Jew before he became a Christian. He just could stay an uncircumcised Gentile. And he never had to promise, I'll become kosher someday. He didn't have to promise that. And God had to do special revelation to show Peter it really is okay to sit down and eat pork chops with this fella. It really is. You can sleep in his house and sleep in his Gentile bed and you can eat the, the pork he sets in front of you and you can accept this man as he is. And this was a big, di- big deal in those days, wasn't it? It was huge. And I, but the question is, when we go overseas, our job is not to win them to the American cause. Our task is to win them to Christ. And to take the imperishable seed of the gospel and plant it in their culture and watch it spring up in ways that are distinctive to their culture and yet the same gospel that we believe and preach. Our job is not to transplant an American church on foreign soil. That's not our task. Turn with me to a text that deals exactly with this very problem. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is here addressing the subject of Christian liberty. In Romans 14 and 15, he deals with Christian liberty and how it affects believers inside the same church, weaker and stronger brothers, etc. He does some of that in 1 Corinthians as well, well, but this particular passage is how does this doctrine affect the subject of cross-cultural ministry? It's in verses 19 to 23. I'm going to read it and then make some commentary about it. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Important qualification here, not, without, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Now you hear what Paul's saying. He didn't go to the Gentiles and say, you've got to become a Jew. He went to the Gentiles and basically became a Gentile. He adopted a non-kosher lifestyle when he was among them. In fact, later when the Galatian churches that were established in his first missionary journey, they started embracing the Judaism uh, that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Do you remember what he said to them? He rebuked them because they were defecting from the gospel. But he also said this, I became like you. Why can you not now become like me? In other words, I became as a Gentile when I was among you. And so that you could understand God accepts you as a Gentile. And you don't have to be a Jew. Now think about Paul. Paul was the Hebrew of Hebrews. This was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. This was the kosher of the kosher. This was the muscle on every toff. I mean, this guy was the man. He was so kosher. And yet for him to set aside all that kosherness, it had to be a self-sacrifice for him. It had to go against all his Jewish sensibilities. But he said it was necessary that I might win the Gentiles, that I do this. It was an act of self-denial. But in doing that, he says, I'm not without law towards Christ, even though I'm acting like I'm not under the the old covenant anymore. But I'm not without law towards Christ. What do you mean by that? There were positive laws in the Old Testament. Positive law is a law that binds a particular people in a particular place, a particular time under a particular covenant. By its nature, it's temporary. So things like circumcision, kosher diets and kosher days, Levitical priesthood, sacrifices, all those things were positive laws. Positive laws are what you see when you see these little white signs with a rectangle around them that says speed limit 45. A particular 
law binding upon a specific place, specific time. It gets subject to change, etc. But when you come into Clinton, there's not a sign that says, Welcome to Clinton. Please don't kill anybody while you're here. Because that's a moral law. That's a law binding upon all peoples of all places of all times. The Ten Commandments are moral law. They're moral law. James tells us that. James chapter 2. He tells us, he calls the, the Ten Commandments the royal law. If you call something royal, what is it? It means it wasn't invented by peasants. It means it came from a king. And who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church? Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments are the royal law of King Jesus. And he goes on to tell us those laws are indivisible. You cannot tamper with one without tampering with all. We've got these beautiful window panes on these stained glass windows beside us. Let's suppose that one of these windows had ten individual panes. And on each one of them you painted each of the different of the Ten Commandments. If you had individual panes like that, you could take a rock or a baseball or whatever and throw it through the fourth pane and break it. And what would happen to the other nine panes? Nothing. They would be intact, right? There would, they, you could break one of those panes without breaking the rest of them. What James is telling us is that's not how the Ten Commandments are. Take instead a single sheet of glass, paint all Ten Commandments upon them, and now try to hit the Fourth Commandment. And I'm picking the Fourth Commandment on for a reason. Hit the Fourth Commandment and try to break just it. What happens? The whole sheet shatters. You break one commandment, you break all the commandments. They stand or fall as a unit. They are binding upon the people of God. Not as a way of salvation, they never could save you to begin with. But as a standard of holiness, yes. And to show us our need for Christ and the need for a Savior, yes. Because the law is not arbitrary rules God made up so that he can make us miserable. They are a transcript of his own character. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you're looking at what God is like. In fact, you're looking at what Jesus, the Son of Man, looks like. Those are his footsteps. Those are his footprints. This is what he looked like. This is the way he lived. And that is so very important to missions, brothers and sisters, because it means this. In all of our seeking to accommodate a culture, sin is sin no matter who you are. And that's imperative as we go and we preach the gospel, because if you can't call sin, sin, then what are you calling people to repent from? They can't know their need. You know, we say all the time, Jesus is the answer. He is the answer, but the problem is the world doesn't know what the question is. And you've got to show them what the question is. You've got to show them they need a Savior. How many of you are familiar with 19th century Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides, John Payton? All right, most of you are. John Payton was an amazing man. He went to the New Hebrides to be a missionary, and it was almost, it would seem like a suicide attempt because the, the uh, nations were filled with cannibals. In fact, the first missionaries that ever got there, five minutes within getting on, on shore, they were beaten to death and cooked and eaten, and all their possessions stolen. And to John Payton, to his mind, that was saying to him, oh, God has sealed it with their blood. We're going to win them. And so he goes to the New Hebrides. Now, you would think that a guy who's dealing with cannibals would emphasize which of the commandments? The six, right? Thou shalt not murder. Do you know they actually emphasized a different one? According to Ian Murray, there was another man, missionary, fellow missionary with John Payton. His name was John Inglis. And he says this, quote, I have no doubt, wrote John Inglis, that the steady and rapid progress of the gospel on Antium was due in no small degree to the manner in which we emphasize the scripture doctrine of the Sabbath and established its observance. We thus secured time for religious instruction, 
quietness for devotional exercises, and above all, brought down upon us the influences of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the divine promise. End of quote. We said to these savage people, your creator commands you to set aside one day in seven to rest and to worship. And they became convinced of it as pagans. They started listening to the gospel and they were converted. And years later, John Payton would do a, a, a tour back in the British Isles. In fact, you may have heard his, his name, King of Cannibals. That came from Charles Spurgeon because he spoke at, at Spurgeon's Tabernacle and he introduced him as the King of the Cannibals. So while he was there, though, he writes in his diary, he writes in his book, he says, I was grieved in my heart by the worldliness of the Scottish Christians on the Sabbath day. And it made me long for another Sabbath day with the New Hebrides because it was so glorious. And he goes on to write about how the first time he administered the Lord's Supper to these new converts, I was watching men who literally had eaten the body and blood of men now partake these elements of the body and blood of Christ. What God can do, his law tells, gives us boundaries. And it's within those boundaries, though, that we have liberty. There's latitude over things indifferent, right? And so there are things that may repel us and even kind of gross us out because of our American culture. But we have to accommodate, don't we? And this is the rock on which missionaries stand or fall. Either you isolate yourself from the culture and say, I'm going to keep on being a Western American Christian. Or you learn to adapt to the culture. And they have things like the way they view time. Africans don't view time the way we view time. For us, it's the minute. For them, it's the, it's the event. So you say you're supposed to have a wedding at 2 o'clock. They may not show up till 4. Because of the events, the important thing. And us Americans go, where is everybody? But you've got to learn to accommodate to the culture. The way even homiletics, the way we preach, we don't change the message. But believe it or not, not everybody thinks in the same thought patterns as Western American Christians do. When we're Roman numeral 1, Roman numeral 2... And for others, that's not the way they think. You don't change the message, but you do change it in the way that they understand it. So it's spoken to them in a way they can comprehend. And so we have to seek to, to, to have that latitude. It's amazing to me. I love in our confession. Have you ever noticed this? That in chapter 19, it's called of the law of God. And it deals this wonderful, wonderful, I mean, best short thing you'll ever read on the law of God ever. It's great. Two, ch two chapters later, it's called of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Apparently, our forefathers didn't think there was any contradiction between loving God's law and walking in true Christian liberty. The chapter right after it's called of, the, of uh, religious worship and the Sabbath day. You know all it is is really just the application of the first four commandments to the time between the ascension of Christ and his return. This is what it looks like. Here's the object of your worship. Here's the way you're to worship him. It's with all reverence and here's the day you worship him. So it's just an application of that and they couch all this in the midst of liberty. You know, isn't it interesting? John, James chapter 2, after he said all these things about the law, you know what James calls the law? He's called it the royal law, then he calls it the law of liberty. Because it's completely consistent with our liberty. Brothers and sisters, you know this can be a controversial aspect of missions. How do you discern which parts of the culture you must confront? Which parts of the culture can you just adopt? Well, we at least have a framework, don't we, to evaluate that. Sin is sin, no matter who you are. But at the same time, there are things I'll set aside in order to win God's people. And if we don't set aside those things, Paul says, I did this that I might win some. Our evangelism can be hindered. And that brings us on to the next thing, which is worship. Worship. I mentioned chapter 22 of our confession that deals with the elements of worship. The elements of worship. The way we worship God is not up for debate. It's fixed. 
He has set ways that we're to worship him, and he doesn't leave us to our own devices, our own imagination. Hey, I think of a great way we ought to worship God this Sunday. Nadab and Abihu did that in Leviticus chapter 10, and God killed them for it. They offered to God not fire which he had forbidden, simply fire which he had not positively commanded. And God killed them for it. And when Aaron was about to cry out and say, Lord, that's not fair, Moses stopped him and said, this is what the Lord told us that my name must be glorified and regarded as holy before the people by offering to him something he did not offer or did not tell you to offer, then you have profaned his name. Uh, years ago, I was reading in the paper, in the uh, Atlanta paper, under the religion section, which I don't look at for my theology, but I was reading a, an article there, and the Atlanta paper had an article about this woman. She was a Methodist who was a uh, Sunday school teacher. And she was going on and on in this article about how she had found that rosary beads were a great help to her when she prayed. And so it was so helpful to her, she said, that she brought rosary beads to her Sunday school class and passed them out and taught them how to do the rosary. Now, if our people, if we stood at our doors and passed out the rosary beads and said, hey, we really think this is going to help you while you worship today. I trust our people would have enough discernment to say, we're not coming back here again. Okay? But think about it. Where in the Bible are we forbidden to use rosary beads? Nowhere. But it's not commanded. It's not commanded. It's superstition. It's man-made superstition, and it's revolting to God. And you and I have no right to impose upon the consciences of worshipers something God himself has not put upon them. We're to worship him in his way. And, and our confession gives four specific elements that are fixed. What, what constitutes worship? It's not just singing. It's the reading, preaching, and hearing of God's word. It's the prayers of the people of God. It is the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, observance of baptism, and the Lord's Supper. We could talk about giving and fellowship and things like that too, but you get the point. The offices of the church are fixed by God. The, uh, the worship is, is fixed. But our confession makes a difference, a distinction between the elements of worship versus the circumstances of worship. Circumstances of worship are basically everything that a Lord's Day worship service has in common with a PTA meeting. Okay? You've got to choose a place to meet, whether it's outdoors or whether it's indoors or in somebody's home. You have to make decisions about lighting. You have to make decisions about are you going to use amplification or not. Will the one speaking stand behind a lectern? Will he sit on the floor? Will you sit semicircle? On and on it goes. Those are circumstances. Well, brethren, the circumstances of worship are going to change with culture, aren't they? What kind of building you sit in? Whether you wear a tie or whether you wear khaki shorts and a shirt because that's what the people wear. Or whether you sit in a grass hut, Indian style, or whether you stand behind a lectern. Even the worship music is going to sound different in different cultures, isn't it? Uh, Ray Gibello, I love the story. He tried his hand at writing some uh, worship music for the people of God there in uh, Papua New Guinea. And they said, we don't like your music. We're going to write our own. And that's really good, isn't it? For him to help them theologically and say, here, let's use the Psalms as your basis, because that's why the hymns have had their staying power. They're built upon the Psalms. But nonetheless, let's use this. Let's guard the theology. Let's make sure what you're doing is reverent. But it is right to express it in their own culture, isn't it? Now, if you and I walked into that service, we're sitting in a grass hut. We would not understand the language. We would, when the scripture was read, we would know the scripture was being read, but we wouldn't recognize it as far as our own tongue. The way people were sitting or standing would not be familiar with our Western forms. Even the, the sound of the singing would be different. A lot of things would be different. And yet, here's the glory. I would recognize exactly what was going on in that worship service. God's word was being read and preached. 
There were elders and deacons in the church. The Lord's Supper, as those elements are passed away, passed around, I know what that means. And I know who they're singing to, even if I don't recognize the songs they're singing. You know, and in fact, here's the glory. Not only would we recognize it, saints from 300 years ago would walk into that service and recognize it. Because the elements are fixed. But the circumstances are completely malleable and changeable. Well, isn't that glorious? Doesn't it give us something with which to go? See, I'm telling you, our confession is full of missions, man. It's good stuff. It's great stuff. And so it helps us and gives us guidance in that way. I'm going to end just on brief, brief thing about, about glory and about the future. Does, what does eschatology have to say to us? And then we're going to, at each end of each session, we want to try to leave some time for questions and comments from the floor. This is a school of world missions. This is an opportunity for you to learn and, and for us to learn together. Certainly, there are things that we can glory in as we think about the second coming of Christ. And there's two things I want to point to from the book of the Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, and you know where this is going. This is glorious. It says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now here's what I want you to see. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. What God purposed in eternity has now come to be fulfilled. That there will be a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in that place. Some of you know the story of Jim Elliott and, and, and these brothers who went to Ecuador and, and, and went to the, what were then called the Aka Indians, who were a hostile tribe. And we're going to tell, you know, tell them about Jesus. And you think, boy, that's a suicide mission, isn't it? To go to a bunch of hostile men. Now, these brothers were not Calvinists. They were more Plymouth brethren and, and, and guys of that nature. But when asked the question, why would you go to the hostile Akas? Nate Saint gave a great answer. He said, when I read the Bible, I see that there are going to be men, women, boys, and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation before the throne. And that means there's going to be Akas there. And maybe God will be pleased to use us to introduce them to the gospel. And we know the story. That's exactly what happened. As a convinced Calvinist who believes in particular redemption, I have no problem with that statement because it's true. Jesus died for Akas. Jesus died for Australians. Jesus died for Papua New Guineans. Jesus died for people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And that gives us hope. There's one final thing I would point you to, and I'm indebted to commentator Thomas Walker, who was a missionary to India, for his commentary on Acts on about this, this point. This is Revelation 21. We talk about culture and not trying to force American culture upon other cultures, but letting them grow up according to the, their, their own culture, letting the gospel be expressed through that culture, through the circumstances of their worship and things like this. But he pointed this out. I never had thought of it. It's in Revelation 21. And we find the new Jerusalem there. And what do we find in verse 22? Listen to it. But I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. They bring peculiar offerings of praise unique to their culture, and they bring it before the king. 
in, that, in heaven above. Isn't that glorious? What a great God we have who has promised the success of world missions. Doesn't mean we may, may not see mass revivals, but there will be people converted from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The will of God the Father to his Son is, this is the will of my Father, that of all he's given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity to be a part of that. And that's exciting. One of our brothers that's here in our church, he said to me, he's talked a lot about missions, he came and said, we have a, I mean, our church has 50 people in it. We're small, okay? He said to me, until I came to this church, I never knew how big the church was. And what he meant was, we're connected to what God is doing in all the earth. And that's exciting stuff.